Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you today. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. Uh, thank the band. Fantastic job today. Great, great music. Um, we ended this uh, nine-month-long lectionary series uh, last week, and we're starting a new series in the garden for the summer. It's on the book of... Uh, make sure that's working for me, guys. Put that over. Put the... Advancing is not... It's not it puts a mouse on the slide there, probably. There we go. Let's see. Is that working? It's still not working, so you need to... Mike, you might need help. All right, so anyway, we're starting this series on 2 Corinthians... Uh, it's interesting because the book of 2 Corinthians doesn't get quite enough attention. Everybody loves 1 Corinthians, you know, because it's talking about sexual immorality. It's talking about tongues and healing. And, and then there's a Corinthians 13 passage where everybody talks about love, and it's always read at the weddings. And, and so 1 Corinthians gets all the publicity, and nobody really talks too much about 2 Corinthians. But that's what we're going to do here in the summer. We're going to talk about 2 Corinthians. So um, is it not working? All right, advance the slide for me until Mike gets up there and fixes it. So just advance it for me. You might have to stand over there and fix it, all right? So um, keep, keep advancing. This is kind of a... I'm not sure why this is not working, but... Well, I'm just going to go through, and we'll catch up to that later. So let me explain a little about what Corinthians was. Yeah, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. We got that. <laughs> so... <laughs> No, not, nothing working. So, um, so what we're going to talk about today is I'm just going to give you a little bit of historical background. Not, this is not the historical part of the passage, but this is the history behind the book of uh, Corinthians. So let me give you a little bit of information about Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a decadent city. It had a lot of money, a lot of commerce. So there's a lot of shipping going on. So Corinth had a lot of people with riches, and it was a very... Uh, you know, a society with a lot of affluent people. But the problem with that was it also became a decadent, sinful city that honestly could have probably made Vegas look like Nokomis or Mayaka. You know, what stays in Mayaka, what happens in Mayaka stays in Mayaka. Mainly because there's no roads to Mayaka. <laughs> but um, it was also full of false teachers galore that were attacking Paul in order that they could preach their false theology, their false doctrine, and they could gather around themselves people so they could have a following. And you can imagine a lot of the people that they would develop as a following had some money. And so in reality, they were trying to get these fake churches together, and the way they would do is they would attack Paul and say, Paul's a liar, Paul's not even an apostle, Paul's not even preaching the real gospel. And so Paul hears about that, and he goes to a visit. He wants to find out what's going on there. So he, he visits them, and the visit does not go very well. As a matter of fact, Paul is made fun of. He's beaten. He's maligned. It's a very difficult time for Paul. So he leaves, and while he's gone, he writes a very stern letter of rebuke in 1 Corinthians. And so what happens is after he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, he basically tells them, look, you guys are terrible. You're immoral sexually. You've corrupted the gospel message. You're trying to have worship with pagan people who don't even believe in Jesus. You're elevating riches over Scripture. 
You've got this whole tongue thing's all messed up, and we talked about that in here specifically a few weeks ago. You guys don't understand. You are spending a lot of time making sure your church is flamboyant and wonderful and great, and it has nothing to do with the gospel. You've got to straighten up. It was a harsh, harsh letter. And so what he does is, after he writes the letter, he goes into Macedonia to find Titus, who is like his right-hand man, his apprentice, to find out how things are going, to get the news of how effective that stern letter was. And the report is good. Many had repented of their immorality. Many had repented of their rebellion against Paul and against the gospel. And so what happens is Paul writes a follow-up letter, knowing there still may be some issues. And this letter is different than 1 Corinthians. Because what Paul wants to do is, okay, there's progress. I want to capitalize on it. I want to make sure people know the gospel is real. I want to make sure people know that I have the authority from Jesus to preach this. I want it to continue. I see the seeds of a restoration, the beginnings of a revival, a reawakening in the church in Corinth. And I want to capitalize on that. And this letter is intensely personal. It's written by Paul in the midst of battling those who are attacking his credibility. They're making fun of him constantly. They're calling him a heretic. They're saying he's a fool. He's an idiot. They're saying that he is just out for money. And much of the attack that was being centered on Paul was around the clear, definitive stands he took in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was not a very inclusive, socially acceptable, politically correct book. And 1 Corinthians had had a massive effect on those that were trying to capitalize and take advantage of the Corinthian church at the time. 1 Corinthians, there was some battle against Paul before he wrote it, but then after 1 Corinthians, the battle raged even more. More people who weren't a part of the church of Corinth hated Paul because of what he had said. But 2 Corinthians has a much different tone than 1 Corinthians. Their journey together as church And founding pastor, it had begun to bear intimacy, affection, much pride in one another, and tremendous love. And so there are two main basic themes in the book of 2 Corinthians, along with encouragement. The two main themes, the first one is Paul defending his apostolic authority. He's saying, listen to me, I don't care what other people say, they are not apostles. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. They don't have the authority to change the gospel. That's the first thing he does. He defends his apostolic authority. The second theme is defending the purity of the gospel. So that's the background of 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians and how it all came about. So with that being said, we're going to go to the next slide. Today, the name of the message is, it's Spanish. Who, Who wrote that in Spanish? Did you guys do that up there? No, I just did that. I'm just kidding. So this is Spanish. Anybody speak Spanish and know what that means? That's exactly what it means. No habla espanol. Great. No. It means, it means no suffering, no good. No suffering, no good. No suffering, no good. I'm going to read the passage to you. There are three slides. I'm going to read these, this passage to you. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Hear that, God of all comfort, who comforts us 
in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which he ourselves, we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, thankful that God is a comforter. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may learn how to comfort others with the very same type of comfort that he has given us. For we for, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. Did you hear that? If we, my team, my missionary team who's going around all this area planting churches, if we suffer, it is for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same type of sufferings that we suffer. Our hope in you is so unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also experience and share in our comfort. Now, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced while we have been in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. In other words, the stuff that we went through was really bad and we wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Isn't that a great passage? Let's look at the historical part of this passage. What we like to do is we like to break down a passage in three applications. The historical, what about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? Then we look at the theological, what about God? What did he do? Why did he do it? And then and only then can you really know what the passage is saying to you and give you a devotional application. What about me? What am I supposed to do? Why and how do I do it? So historically, I want to look at pastoral street cred. That means credibility for you people over 40. Pastoral street credibility. First of all, Paul says his suffering was worth it because it made him a better apostle. It made him a better comforter. It made him a better shepherd. Now remember, Corinth was an absolute mess when he wrote 1 Corinthians. But Paul had street credibility because of the suffering that he had gone through as a result of serving them. The suffering that Paul was experiencing, the suffering that they saw, was a result of the fact that he planted the church, that he was shepherding them, he was pastoring to them, he was ministering to them, he was taking stands for them, and that was the reason he was experiencing a lot of this suffering. See, he didn't write 1 Corinthians from an ivory tower of arrogance. He didn't write it as someone saying, you guys are terrible, I'm so much better. See, they had seen him belittled, they had seen him imprisoned, they had seen him beaten, they had seen him slandered, they had seen him be willing to endure all types of suffering just so that he could love them as a pastor. He wasn't some outsider that hadn't earned the right to speak sternly with them. He had earned a hard-earned, costly privilege of apostolic and pastoral authority. He had earned the right to be direct, 
honest, harsh, because they knew all that he had done, all that he had suffered. And why? Because of his commitment to them, the commitment to his ministry to them. They knew his love for them had, tossed, had cost him a ton. So you can see why this letter is so emotional. So let's look at the theological part of this passage. I'm going to give you a new phrase, a new theological term. I'm going to call it divine comfort. Divine comfort. See, God comforts Paul in this affliction. That action by God gives Paul's team effectiveness they would never have otherwise had. His affliction, his affliction caused him to abandon earthly hope earthly pleasures, earthly loves, earthly joys, and his affliction and suffering had caused him to cling to heavenly hope. And this is the definition. This is what I will call divine comfort going forward. So remember this for the rest of the message. The combination of God's hand and earthly suffering producing power for kingdom work that would otherwise never occur. The combination of God's hand and earthly suffering producing power for kingdom work that would otherwise never occur. Where does divine comfort come from? It comes from three main areas. First of all, it comes from God's word. Inspired truth that is authoritative, inspirational, infallible, completely 100% trustworthy, inspired truth that speaks to our heart. And our mind, it challenges what you believe, it challenges what you think, and one of the first places that we get divine comfort from is through his word. The second thing that gives us divine comfort is God's hand. Direct intervention that comforts our emotions. Direct intervention that says, wow, in the midst of my suffering, I can feel the presence of God in circumstances that he is bringing about. The third place that divine comfort comes from is God's people. And this is my favorite place. I shouldn't say that. I love God's word. I like God's hand. So don't, like, write me up or anything for that. But God's people, whom he works in, right, it's a human touch that speaks to our bodies. So you can see where God's divine comfort is our heart, our mind, our emotions, and our body. In fact, Paul expressed this theology of divine comfort in several places. Here's a couple of examples. The first one is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For Paul to say that in the midst of what he was suffering, he's saying, look, as bad as I have it right now as I'm writing Romans, as bad as I had it when I was writing 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I know this, I am one of the called of God for his purpose, and I also know this, it's all going to work out for the better. Look at this next verse in 2nd Corinthians 4, this book that we're studying. Look at this. This is one of my favorite passages in 2nd Corinthians. For this light momentary affliction or suffering... It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to what we're going through right now. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, look, the suffering that we're going through together with you is nothing compared to the benefit it will bring. Because all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to its purpose. So you see in these two books, Paul is beginning to weave together this theology of divine comfort when suffering is here. Wow. When things that we're going through are hard, they're temporary, and it works for us such better things for the future. Divine comfort. So let's look at the devotional part of this, shall we? Now remember our definition of what divine comfort is. Suffering mixed with God's hand that brings about kingdom impact that we would never otherwise have. Let me tell you about the effects. The first effect is this. Divine comfort reminds us that God is sovereign. Paul said, as I went through this comfort, it reminded me that I needed to not rely upon myself, but rely upon God who is in charge. Can you see how suffering can remind you that God is in control? Now, some people would say, I can't believe in God, all the bad stuff that goes on in the world. I would submit to you, when I, did, when I endure the bad stuff in this world, it's because of man's decadent sinfulness. It reminds me, thank God, he is in charge. In spite of man's sinfulness. Another effect is it forces us to rely on one another. Div- Divine comfort mixed with suffering, you know what it does? It clarifies how much we need our brothers and sisters. We desperately need one another. And suffering and divine comfort make that indelibly clear that you cannot stand. Well, I don't have to go to church. Yes, you do. Because you need one another. We need you. You need us. Another effect of divine comfort And I love this one. It enables us to have one foot here and one foot in eternity. If you're not suffering, all you can think about is how great life is. When you go through suffering mixed with divine comfort, you know what happens? Yeah, I'm still here, but man, heaven's going to be great. And you begin to straddle that fence of eternity and the temporal. And you start to realize there's so much more to life than what I see. Because the things which we see are temporary. The things we don't see are eternal. And what begins to happen is suffering. And I can tell you from personal experience, what begins to happen in suffering mixed with divine comfort, you can really start to understand, wow, there is eternity. And thank God there is. And the last effect of divine comfort, it transforms us into the child of God we want to be. You want to be godly? You want to be like Christ? Then you better share in the sufferings of Christ. If your goal is to have a life, a church, a family, where there is no hardship, your life's going to suck. I'm just telling you it is. Your suffering is my blessing, and vice versa. Your suffering is my blessing. My suffering is your blessing. Have you ever thought of your hardship as a gift to others? Have you? Have you ever thought about the fact that your suffering is a gift to others? See, here's what naturally happens with suffering. Humanly speaking, suffering pain and affliction makes us turn inward. It makes us feel entitled. 
to sympathy and compassion. That's the natural reaction to suffering. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a sinner in the midst of sinners. Life is rough. I give up. It's not fair. And suffering without divine comfort makes us look inside. But the supernatural reaction, when divine comfort is applied to suffering, divine comfort from his word, divine comfort from his hand, divine comfort from his people, when divine comfort is applied, the supernatural reaction to suffering is outward, ministering, blessing others. You know, Paul talked about how harsh his suffering was how he almost despaired for life. So I was thinking about what I could use as an object lesson for you to get perspective. And I I don't like to go here all the time. I hesitate to go here, but I don't have a better example of how suffering can be a blessing to others. And I want to talk about how losing Sarah, my daughter, mixed with divine comfort, had a massive impact on me. And it started from the very first day. Put it up there, God's word. Each day, I found promises in Scripture that sustained me, that made my faith stronger, that made me realize, man, I've got a rock in my life, and it's the Word of God. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of Laura and I and my son Ben, we were grieving and we were hurting and our church was grieving and hurting as well and all those things. In the midst of that, I found God's word to be so soothing. And unless you've been through suffering, you really can't understand what I'm saying. I received comfort from God's hand. God used things that I would see in the world that I never would have noticed before. That suffering had changed my eyesight. It changed my vision. And these things that God would bring about, these little signs I would see walking down a street or, or, or hanging out with friends, and some things that would happen, God would just say, hey, just remember, I'm here. Sometimes, in the middle of nowhere, it moved me to tears. My friends would say, Joe, are you okay? And in tears, I'd say, I'm more than okay, I'm thriving. Yes, it was painful, but I was thriving. And that brings me to the last place where God comforted me, God's people. From the front lawn of my house on the very first day to now. I remember when I, we were there at the house and people started gathering just right after we had you know, gotten the news. I remember not being able to stand up and a dear friend of mine named Lolly Gonzalez, he was one of the elders in the church at the time, I was, gonna, I was literally, my knees, were, my legs weren't holding me up, and he grabbed me on the front lawn, and he held me up. And I'm just bawling. I don't, I'm crying, and he's holding me. And uh, he said, we got you. We got you. And God used people on that front lawn and every day since in my life for divine comfort. That's why I can tell you this verse is real. The next slide will show you, James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I am so grateful 
that we endure suffering coupled with divine comfort if we're children of God. Like Paul and the Corinthians, the suffering that our family went through has given me affection for so many of you. Well, most of you. (laughs) The suffering mixed with divine comfort has made me such a better shepherd and a pastor. And look, this is just my personal example. You have yours. Because I will tell you this, without suffering and divine comfort, I am a terrible pastor, I'm a terrible shepherd, and you are a terrible church. I'm not kidding. Without suffering and divine comfort, I'm terrible as a pastor and a shepherd, and you're terrible as a church. Can you imagine how bad our church would be if none of us experienced suffering and divine comfort? I mean, can you imagine how bad it would be if none of us had the gift to give to each other of being suffering and then being comforted in a divine way by God's word, by God's hand, by God's people? Can you imagine how terrible our fellowship would be if none of us had the gift to offer, which is, hey, here's my suffering. Here's how God comforted me. I got you. I got you. I got a quote from a man named Oswald Chambers. Many of you know who he is. Let's put the next slide up there. I feel sorry for the Christian that I put in this part or the church. I put that part in. I feel sorry for the Christian who doesn't have something in their life that he wishes were not there. You know, there's this mindset that once you know Jesus, it's supposed to be a lot better. No, it's not. And you better hope it's not. Because if you don't suffer, you don't get the joy of divine comfort from God's word, God's hand, and God's people. And you don't get the joy of becoming everything you need to be for his church.